Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of, your, one of the pastors here. And if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out, or you can get that blue one and pull it out and open up to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 uh, is where we're working from here. Um, as a church, at the beginning of the year, if you haven't been with us, we've been working through the book, the book of John, where we've been, at, we've been really looking at this book, rolling up our sleeves. We're a couple chapters into it at this point. And, and what's really awesome about John is what John is all about is he wrote his gospel account like 50 years after Jesus's life and, and like 20 years or maybe even more after the other gospel accounts were written. So he's trying to pepper in things into his account to help Christians and people who are curious about Christianity um, uh, understand what the gospel really is um, because he's seeing all these misconceptions that have kind of crept into the Christian faith as it, as it has exploded really and expanded into all these different areas. Um, and the Christian faith is really something that always needs continual um, explanation, added, uh, added conversations, added uh, thoughts and, and, and nuances that need to be talked about um, because it's complex. Because Christianity is, is complex. I grew up uh, being told the opposite. The gospel is really, really simple. <laughs> but it's not especially when you're trying to take the gospel and make it clear in a setting that has never encountered it before, in a setting that, that didn't grow up listening to it. Everything's simple if you grow up in the, the environment where that thing is practiced all the time. Uh, there's this one kid whose parents love cycling, love cycling, and so they taught him to cycle when he was like 18 months old. You know, and so I'm teaching my girls to, to cycle around like five or six years old, which I thought was normal, but but he, this other kid was just blowing him out of the water, and I was asking his dad, what are the tips? And he says, it's really simple, it's really simple. I'm like, it's obviously not simple because she's falling over and scraping her knee, you know? So, but, and so Christianity could be the same way. It takes, a, it takes a, a, a little bit of work to understand the complexities behind it, the backstory behind it. We're going to dive into all of that today. Um, but it's not just for those people who may uh, be coming to Christianity from the outside. Christianity, even to those of us who are on the inside, we can let it become simple in our lives. We can actually think that we have it mastered and figured out. And as we come to John chapter 3, this 16th verse, we do that with more than any other verse in the Bible. We're, we're unpacking this passage here. This is a verse that, that you've seen. That If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, this is a, a verse that you've probably come into contact with dozens of times over the, the course of your Christian life. Um, and what we want to say, and what Dave said a little bit last week, too, I'm not, I'm not going to go all the way into his uh, argument, which is great, uh, is we can always come to know these scriptures deeper, better, um, uh, more. We can always experience John 3.16 and the verses around it, which is what we're going to talk about today, in a new and, and thrilling way, an exciting way, a way that, 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 that sweeps us off of our feet with with what God is up to in the world if we just keep considering it, which is to say to continue to consider and entertain the idea that you don't have life figured out. We don't have life figured out. We don't have God figured out. We don't have the world figured out. We don't have one another figured out. We don't have church figured out. We don't even have ourselves really figured out. Um, a few weeks ago, I was just reflecting on my own life and I discovered about myself, something about myself that is completely foundational to who I am. And I was like, what? This thing kind of informs 
how I interact with almost every other single human being that I come into contact with, how have I not understood this about myself? I'm 35 years old. It's amazing. It's amazing. And so if we can't even understand ourselves fully, how much more can we understand, or how much less can we understand the things outside of ourselves? One another, church, God, like all these big things. No, when we dive into the scriptures each and every Sunday, we're really inviting you to roll up your sleeves and dare to get excited by them again. Dare to, dare, dare to see this, the, these scriptures as, as the food that they are meant to, to fill you up and energize you and, and send you out with enthusiasm into your weeks and into your workplaces, into your homes, everywhere you're going to be. Um, and to, in this passage, John chapter 3, he tells us so much about each of these subjects, God, ourselves, how we can get, how we can be together again and and the first thing I want to note, uh, Dave went into it at length last week, and so if you want to know more about this, you can go there. Um, at verse 16, your Bible probably says that this is a continuation of the conversation that Jesus was having with Nicodemus. Um, and the church thought this for a long time, primarily because the scriptures, when they were originally written, didn't have punctuation. So they didn't have periods, didn't have commas, exclamation points, question marks, or quotation marks. And so uh, it was just assumed that, that Jesus kept on talking all the way through verse 21. Um, but actually, for a long time, we've, it's actually understood to be the case. Actually, John seems to have switched back here. This voice, the author's voice, sounds more like John chapter 1. The subjects he's talking about, it sounds more like John chapter 1. Um, in fact, I was reading a commentary this week where a very reputable scholar, you know, was arguing this conclusion way back in 1991. This is well before many of you were born. This has been a very settled uh, thing for a while. I, I don't know why the modern tra- translations are struggling to keep up. I, I don't know. I, I did notice this week that the NIV, which has transitioned to actually making a few edits every year as they look at the scriptures and, and more research is done on them, they actually officially made the switch and the quotation ends right at the end of verse 15. Um, so good job, NIV. Good job, NIV. We're, we're slowly catching up. Um, but let's start by reading our passage together today. We read it last week. We're going to read it again today. Dave primarily uh, drilled down on the love of God. We're going to look at um, a lot of other things that are happening here in this passage. So 3 verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world in this way, so you can say, so loved the world, or loved the world in this way. This is how God loved the world. I loved how, what Dave said last week. He said, this is almost like double entendre. He loves the world a lot. And he showed it like this. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their their deeds were evil. For anyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Let's pray. Father God, as, as we come to your word today, we, we just surrender ourselves to you. Um, 
you brought us here into this room today to, to hear from what your disciple John uh, said and tried to clarify about this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus so that people could find life in you, so that people could understand who they are, what, they're, what story they're in, who you are, and how to progress in life to come closer to you, God. And so right now, I just, uh, we just ask that all of us in, in our hearts, we would just, God, would you just help us look to you and, and be open to answering uh, to, to what you have to say about those subjects in our lives and entertaining them together. So we ask that you would just uh, make these words uh, speak and breathe with your spirit so that uh, people, uh, not just us, uh, but the, the whole world can come to find life in you. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, for God so loved the world, loved the world. Dave talked about that last week, so we're not going to talk about it this week. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's really important that God loved the world. <laughs> we can't just skip over that. But if you did miss Dave's sermon last week, be sure to go back and listen to it because the, God's love is the foundation of this passage that John is building everything else on top of. The love of God. The love of God. Sorry, I share a microphone with a large Scandinavian man and this thing's falling. <laughs> this thing's falling off. That's okay, though. <laughs> no, God, God loves the world. You are loved by God deeply, deeply, in a way that, that far outpaces the way that your imperfect father loves you, loved you. He loves you so, so, so much. You are so incredibly dear to him. This is what I believe and what Christians believe to be a true fact, and it's an incredibly helpful fact. Once you uh, come to realize and embrace the fact that the creator of the universe loves you? Oh my gosh, it revolutionizes and changes your life. Dave talked about it last week. It's true before it's helpful. It's true before it's helpful and it's beautiful. Um, God loves you immensely and incredibly. But John continues and, and shares more here to help us actually grasp the depths of the gospel story that's going on. Because like I mentioned earlier, we can go into this, and, and it's actually a bottomless well that can continue to, to give us life and, and, and give us uh, um, knowledge and, and, and joy and peace and, and, and security. We can continue to dive into it and jump into this, and this is what John wants us to do, to tell us more about who we are, who God is, the whole backstory behind all of this. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is the gospel, and it is beautiful. It is beautiful. And in the gospel class, we would call it the gospel proper. The gospel proper. This is everything that God is doing through Christ here on earth to bring people back to him. That's the gospel proper. And in the gospel class, we talk about how this gospel proper sits in a bigger story a bigger story of actually what's going on so that um, once you understand the story, then the gospel proper gets even more beautiful, gets even more clear. It, it, it's easier to throw yourself into it and wrap your arms around it. Because who, who is the person that say, you, you want to bring the gospel to someone and, and you bring just John 3.16 to them and they say, yes, 
I love that. I want to follow that, that Jesus with my whole life. I'll give up everything to follow that Jesus. The person who does that already has the gospel backdrop built out in their mind. The person who does that probably lives in Texas, in Florida, North Dakota. I'm not just going against the South here. But the, the person who, who does this already li- likely lives in a context where they know this backstory. But as the gospel is progressing into new places, John says, whoa, we have to flesh out the backdrop for people. We have to flesh it out. Because if you just say John 3.16 to somebody who has no idea really who may have heard of Christianity but doesn't really have the backdrop that Christianity provides about the human condition and who God is, they're going to say, God loves me? Why wouldn't he? Why is that important? Giving the son, what does that mean to give the son? Belief? Perishing? Eternal life? What are these things? Aren't these just the things that every religion grapples with? You see that? They don't understand the backstory and how the story that undergirds the Christian gospel, everything that God is doing in Jesus Christ, actually has a a deep, deep foundation in order for us to even see the love of God as good, see the love of God for what it is. And Jesus had just gotten done talking to Nicodemus, this guy who had supposedly spent his life studying the Hebrew scriptures. That's the first two-thirds of your Bible. Spent his life studying them. Spent his life teaching them. And when Jesus begins to explain the gospel, even to him, what happens? He's bewildered. He doesn't understand. Jesus says, Aren't you, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things? Remember, there's no punctuation, so you can put a question mark there. It's probably in your Bible. If you want to put an exclamation point after that, you don't understand these things? How? How? You see, if we have a misinformed or a misconstrued backstory of, of, of humanity, we're not ready to even understand the gospel. Nicodemus even knew these, the back two-thirds of the Bible better than you do, and he didn't even have the right backstory. So to understand the, verse, the, the depths of verse 16, we need verse 17. We need verse 17, which goes like this, For God did not send his Son in the, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And to understand verse 17, you need verse 18. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And to understand 18, you need 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. You see, there's, there's additional, more and more of the backstory is coming into focus as John goes verse by verse. Oh, that's a component of this. Oh, humanity is, is loving evil deeds. Oh my goodness, there's something called condemnation that's present. What is this all about? See, these are all, as the gospel goes forward into new places and even old places, commerce, separate conversations that need to happen so that we can understand the gospel for what it is and see it for the beauty that it is as well. So writing 50, 50 more years after Jesus. Gospel's going into new places where it didn't go before. I, I envision John kind of has this kind of scenario in mind of someone talking to their friends back in the first century. Have you heard of this Jesus? Have, have you heard of this Jesus? Well, I, I think so. I think I've heard about him before. 
yeah, I've told you about him before. He's, he's Jesus Christ. You know, he was kind of down from Israel in, in Palestine. Oh, yeah, isn't that the guy who, like, died on, on the cross or something so that people could live forever? Yes, that's the guy. That's the guy. You should believe in him so you can believe, so you can live forever. Oh, I'd really like to live forever, and it looks like you have a great community going on there. I guess, I'll, I guess I'm a Christian now. I'd love to be a Christian. And John's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You've only begun to scratch the surface with what's going on. This stuff is more complicated this, than that. We need the backstory. And the backstory doesn't seem to be good, does it? It doesn't seem to be good. People love darkness. They're already condemned. People do evil, he says. Why? Well, because they love darkness, he says. People hate the light. Light, back in chapter 1, was equated with who? Jesus Christ. People hate the light. They avoid the light. They hide from the light, he says. This is, this is really what's going on here. John is yanking us back, and he's saying, hold on a sec. Humanity is predisposed to hate and hide from goodness, from God. God shows up to give his very self to others, and they hate it. They kill him. John's making things abundantly, abundantly clear here. Humanity, all of it, apart from Jesus, stands condemned for this before God. Different biblical writers put it different ways. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us measure up to fulfilling what God hoped to accomplish in us, through us, by us. That's what it means to fall short of the glory of God. We don't want to get on board with what he has to do, which, which places us in a state of condemnation before Jesus even showed up. Now John argues, and this is really important, that Jesus showed up not to condemn us, but to be a solution to that condemnation which already existed. Sometimes you might hear people say, well, Christianity isn't about condemnation, it's about Jesus. And you have to go, well, yes, the gospel proper is about Jesus, but it's about Jesus showing up into a scenario and into a scene where all of humanity stands guilty before God, condemned, which is standing guilty before God. And then, Dave talked about last week, Romans 6.23, sentenced to death, the wages of sin is death. I think, wow, yikes. Really? Sentenced to death? Sure, I might have done some like bad stuff in the past, but that was pretty minor, actually. And I'm generally a pretty good person now. And besides, society has created some pretty good guardrails now for like the really bad people. Like the really bad people get sentenced and kind of taken out of the, the pool, and then we can all play nicely again, right? Like, why the universal scope here? This is what I hate about Christianity. There's just no nuance here. They don't understand that we already have solved this problem. This is why I love St. Augustine. Um, St. Augustine lived 1,600 years ago, uh, North Africa. He's from from North Africa. Um, And he wrote a a set of 13 books called The Confessions. Confessions. Um, It's a book book really all about uh, the confessions of his life before he became a a, a Christian. And in book one, he sets up his birth and his childhood. Um, And in book two, he kind of enters into his teenage years. And he starts like this. He says, I propose now to set down my past wickedness and the carnal corruption of my soul. Now, I, I, abhor, 
I propose to set down. I mean, he's going to write down. I'm, I'm going to write down my past wickedness and the carnal corruption of my soul. And so we're in his teenage years, and so we expect, expect him to talk about the fleshly desires of a teenage boy. But he doesn't. It's very fascinating. He wants to talk about pears. He wants to talk about pears. He recounts this, this, this scenario where, where he and his friends went to an orchard and they stole pears. And they stole pears and, 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 and they run away with them. And it confuses him. It disturbs him because they didn't have anything against the person who owned the orchard. They weren't even hungry. They end up tossing the pears off to the pigs. And it confuses him and it, it stuns him. They didn't have anything against it. Well, why would he be motivated to do this? He says, I seemed to be motivated just by the desire to do wrong. He wrote, if any part of these pears passed my lips, it was just the sin of it that would have given it any flavor. He was doing it for no other reason than because it actually was wrong. He says, I have no motivation for wickedness except wickedness itself. I was foul and I loved it. How honest. Now, this behavior has come to be understood and and labeled in the psychological world as uh, perversity. Perversity. Now, we usually have sexual connotations with this word, but, but at its more fundamental level, perversity just refers to actions that you choose to do that you know are wrong, and you choose to do them at least in part because they're wrong, just like Augustine did, okay? Just because they're wrong, just like Augustine did with the pears. Can you think of anything like this that you've done in your life? Because I think the beauty of the story of Augustine is that all of us have a story like this. I know I do. If you watch the movie Green Book, by the way, anybody watch the movie Green Book? Great movie, great movie. There's this funny scene where this grown, strong bouncer guy is going through a rest stop and he just steals like a, a polished rock from the gas station store just because he wants, has this desire to do wrong. And it's actually part of the true story of the movie. And so throughout the confessions, Augustine shows that this perversity, it didn't just present its head, its head in the pears, but time and time and time and time again throughout his life before he became a Christian. Tide Pod Challenge. Anybody hear about the Tide Pod Challenge? Let's talk about this. Tide Pod Challenge. This is a challenge where teenagers would, would video uh, themselves taking a bite or, or swallowing an entire Tide Pod. You guys remember this? 2012, 2013? An entire Tide Pod. Thousands of them end up going to the emergency room. A handful die. And so Procter & Gamble, who owns Tide like, we have to do some sort of ad campaign to stop this. And so they just get Gronkowski. Like, who's cool in these kids' eyes? Gronkowski. He's cool. They're going to listen to what he says. Let's get this guy to do an ad, and they just kind of put questions up, and then, should I do this? And then Gronkowski just yells, no, in the most serious way that he can, over and over and over and over again. But you know what happened? Emergency room visits skyrocketed. Skyrocketed. It got even worse. It got even worse. Why does this happen? Well, modern-day psychologists, again, they have a, a, a word for this called reactance. It's a thing that you feel inside of yourself. It's an unpleasant feeling that emerges. It comes out when people experience or, or feel a, a threat to or a loss of their free behaviors. When you feel a threat to or a loss of your, your free behavior that you not that you want to do it, but that you could do it. Like, like, like my freedom's kind of being threatened, and I might lose that. I'm going to go eat a Tide Pod. 
That's what happened. Well, we all experience reactance, and often we respond by doing the, thing that, the very thing that some authority has told us not to do. Or the other way, if authority tells us to do something, we won't do it. We're free. We're free. We just want to reassure ourselves, perhaps others, that we are free, independent beings. Now, is this new just because the psychological community has created terms for these things? No, not at all. Not at all. This is the effect of any law, including God's law. And Paul, in Romans chapter 7, actually talks about how he experienced reactive, or reactance in terms of God's law. He outlines this in Romans chapter 7. And he's, he's probably speaking more universally here, like every, all of Israel that heard God's law has this experience. It's in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would, not known, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, reactance. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin actually sprang to life again, and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. This is, what, this is how we respond to any law, including God's law. It's how we feel it. God's rule shows up and it pricks us in here. We, we feel it. We say, ah, oh, am I a free being? I, I really want to be a free being. No, I'm going to govern myself very much. I have the freedom and liberty to make my own decisions. I have complete agency over what I want to do in life. We are fundamentally oriented to protect our own autonomy and independence. How we live our life. This is why the tree in the Garden of Eden is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is why the temptation from the snake was the God who created you is just abusing you, is abusing his authority and telling you not to eat this fruit from the tree. Maybe it was a pear. And they act on it. Independence. Call it whatever you want, though. Perversity, reactance, our autonomy, obsession, our Tide Pod problem. Call it sin. It puts us at odds with God who created us for the specific purpose of displaying what he's like displaying what he's like in the world. If we can't get on board and listen to him when he tells us this is what I'm like, it's our, it's our autonomy problem. It's sin. And then therefore that's why we stand judged, condemned, sentenced to death. Heavy stuff. Now, the other night I was in my backyard uh, with, with my daughters and um, the two big girls were playing basketball together. Um, they, a squabble emerges of some sorts, and I'm like, hey, guys, you guys were having such a great time together. Can we just forget about it and move on? And they're like, sure, we'll try. And so I turn my back, and I'm playing with my, my youngest daughter, and I look back about 10 seconds later, and I see one of my daughters, who shall re- remain nameless, taking the ball, then all of a sudden, you know, boom, throws an elbow into the other daughter's chest, throwing bows out there, you know. Um, scene erupts. My first thought is like, man, she could be a good basketball player. Right? <laughs> you know, she seems to really understand, you know, how to move her opponent where she wants them and take advantage of that, you know. 
And uh, my second thought is, oh man, like, I'm pretty upset about that this happened, you know? And so separate them, we do our timeouts, and I'm, I go to the offender, and, I, and, I'm, and we're arguing. She's like, she deserved it. She deserved it. And we're arguing, it's going back and forth, it's getting nowhere. And until I just slow down, I look at her and I say, I'm angry at you because you hurt my little girl. And she softens. She steps back a little bit. And I'm like, good. Conviction has started to set in. This is exactly what we need. And then I said, I'm angry at you, but I still love you more than anything in the world. And then her tears of anger at me, she wraps her arms around me, buries her face in, in my stomach and starts crying. It's more complicated than God's just angry with us. He's incredibly over the moon with us, loves us at the same time. So while, while we can start with the gospel message and we can start and we can say something along the, the lines of, you're condemned by God, you struggle with perversity, reactance, autonomy, sin, tide pods, just like everybody else, what are you going to do about it? We have to admit on some level, that's more clumsy than what John is doing here. John is saying, this is God's dilemma that he's in. This is a conundrum for God as well. This is a big quandary for God. Now, don't misunderstand. This problem hasn't caught God by surprise. It's actually one that he set up to more clearly reveal who he is, who he is in the world and and, and what he's all about. Now, that statement probably sparks a whole host of questions regarding God's fairness and goodness and all those things. And those are really great questions. Uh, write them down. Um, talk to Dave about them. He loves talking about those ones. Uh, we're not going to dive into them today, but let's just focus on this pickle that God is in, that we are both loved and condemned. We are loved and condemned. God isn't some impersonal force that just condemns people to death. His heart is completely torn open by it, even though he is the judge. And this dilemma actually isn't something that's that's new. Um, It's actually throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And so if you ever hear someone say, the Old Testament God, oh my gosh, I don't see the love in the Old Testament God, I just see the anger. This God doesn't seem to be in a dilemma. They, they, they just are skipping over some of these really, really, really crucial parts of Israel's history, like this one in Ezekiel chapter 18. Um, in fact, if you want a reading guide for John, I'm becoming more and more convinced that it's Ezekiel. Uh, almost every week we've touched on Ezekiel as we've been going through John. He either just read Ezekiel right before he penned this thing or is actually really intentionally trying to communicate something that God revealed to Ezekiel that has been fulfilled in Christ that John is trying to highlight for the church. And it's probably particularly important because in Ezekiel, you actually have the event of the temple being destroyed, um, which is a big tension, actually, for Christians. Um, John is the only gospel writer writing after that, and so he writes about the temple a lot. And so there's a lot of temple stuff in Ezekiel. But, but part of what this, uh, this 
kind of God's dilemma, God's, God's, that he's angry and incredibly loving of his people services in Ezekiel chapter 18. In Ezekiel chapter 18, God uh, really speaks through Ezekiel to outline all of the injustices that Israel is committing among one another and in the world, and he sentences them to death, saying, I'm going to have Babylon come in here and completely siege Jerusalem and take it over, and many people are going to die. And then he says this. This is God speaking. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, even the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord God. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives? You see, I'm not an emotionally distant being. I'm not detached. I'm angry with injustices. That's actually part of my being uh, completely attached and connected to humanity. Uh, and, And I love each and every person, even the wicked ones who are committing the injustices. But I have to put my foot down somewhere. Uh, Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 2 as well. Ephesians 2, 3 through 5. <clears throat> Talking, uh, so the, the, if, if, uh, most of the New Testament letters are written to churches. And so he's talking to people who are Christians and he's trying to remind them of what their lives were like before they were not Christians. He says, uh, we too all previously lived among them, that is people who have not yet believed in Jesus, in our fleshly desires carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Everybody stands condemned, is what John is saying. But God, who, and it's God's wrath, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, which is a fancy word for sin. You are saved by grace. You are saved by grace. See, can you appreciate this tension that God himself is in? Now, God being infinite does mean that his anger is way more intense than human anger. Sometimes we catch glimpses of this anger, and we conclude no love can overcome this anger. But in fact, God's love is far more intense and far more surpassing than any human love. Oh, what, what I see happen a lot is people will, will substitute divine wrath in for God, but human love. No, he has divine love meets divine wrath in something that Paul there called grace. Grace, and he extends it out. Now, how does God solve the, the dilemma? He gives the Son, Jesus Christ, who experiences the full intense love of God, as well as the full intense anger and wrath of God on the cross for our injustice, for our sin, for our proclivity to eat Tide Pods. I'm sorry, I keep on coming back to it. I love it. Just love it. On the cross, that mysteriously those who want to be made right with him again, all of their injustices, past, present, future, get time warped 2,000 years ago and put on Jesus and God's wrath for that, that, that sentence of condemnation paid for back then. It's, it's a mystery how that actually works, this kind of supernatural sin-traveling stuff. And so the question is, that, I mean, that's how God solved the pickle. That's how God solved it. He sent his son to die. There's nothing you can do to actually get yourself out of this pickle. God has to do it first. God has to act first. God has to show up in a, a, such a powerful way and say, my love outpaces my, my anger for you. 
So what's the way forward? Because is this not the question that Nicodemus is asking? Isn't Nicodemus asking if you were here two weeks ago, what's the way forward? How do I understand this? How do I get on board with what you're actually really all about, Jesus? And it's these last three verses that describe the way forward for those who are on the edges of belief, for for curious onlookers who Christianity is beginning to pique their interest. They're, They're no longer indifferent, but they're interested. They're intrigued. John often will speak to those who are kind of beginning to become intrigued. He's gotten the nickname, actually, the evangelist. These are people who help people with their questions as they're intrigued about God, help them come to understand who God is and, and all of these things. He gets called the evangelist. That's what he's doing. And so if, if, if that's you, and I know there's a couple of handfuls of you out, out there today, um, this is for you, which is so wonderful. And John has you in mind as he writes this. A lot of the Bible, like we just read from Ephesians, Paul's writing to Christians. But John has the, the, the not yet Christian in mind for a lot of this, which is, so if that's you, great. And then for the rest of us, this is, John's trying to help you, give you eyes for the tensions that they live in as well. Um, so these last three verses are, are really where he's trying to help us see how people begin to come to God. Okay, so this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love darkness. I started in verse 19. Rather than the light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Now, what am I saying here? Am I saying the opposite of what I just said, that we don't get ourselves out of a pickle? Am I? Not really. Think back to Jesus' conversation with, with Nicodemus. John is trying to elaborate on what that conversation really revealed about God's plan. The first thing is that the Son of Man will be raised up. We talked about that. Just like Moses raised a snake in the, in the wilderness, so the people who were bitten by snakes that God had sent in among them because they had rebelled against them. We have, kind of have this picture of condemnation uh, um, and a, a death sentence being issued, and then They petition Moses. Moses goes. He makes the staff and then declares anybody who looks at the staff will be healed. Okay, so we have a little bit of a picture in part of what all humanity is actually in in this condemnation. We need to just look to the staff so that we can be healed. That's what Jesus says. This is what I'm showing up here to do. There's there's human choice in this. You You can stay bitten by the snake and not go to the staff, which in a certain sense is acknowledging that, oh my goodness, I'm gonna die. This is you know, I'll, I'll admit it. This is partially my fault here. You know, I was complaining about the manna too with everybody else. You know, you go and they look and they find healing. They find healing. And another thing that Jesus said in this conversation with Nicodemus was that one must be born of the water and of the spirit. One must be born of the water and the spirit. Jesus, and this is the point where Jesus is. Nicodemus becomes really confused, and Jesus is like, you're a teacher in Israel, and you don't understand these things? And, and Dave showed how, if, I, if you go back to Ezekiel, Jesus likely has Ezekiel in mind as, as he's talking about this. <clears throat> you have to be born of the water and of the Spirit. And birth is a very passive event for every infant. Uh, I don't maybe, What did you do to get out of the womb? <laughs> this is very passive. I've, I've been... They don't do a whole lot. I've been at three of those. You know, um, they don't do a whole lot. So what is this water birth and spirit birth stuff? 
Well, water birth, this water baptism that, that Jesus is referring to, that John highlights, is almost certainly referring to the baptism and of John the baptizer that, that John has already talked a lot about, actually, up to this point. We're going to talk about him when we do come back to the text. If you'll notice, he's, uh, John 3.22 starts up with John the Baptist again. Um, and what's what we have to understand is this is not this baptism is not exactly equivocal to Christian baptism today. Jesus called John's baptism a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism something that people did because they gained the conviction that how they were living their life either wasn't living in congruence with how God wanted them to live or wasn't delivering them the true results that they were hoping for in life. They weren't experiencing the deep satisfaction like they felt should actually be part of life. They had a hole within them, you could say. So they, 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 they're coming to, to John, and they're leaning into this repentance, which in essence is, is saying, okay, I'm going to get on board with, with the fact that I might not have all of this figured out. I, I need to be renewed in a certain sense. I'm going to turn to God to see what might be there for me. This is probably very similar to the the way that people conceived of baptism as Jesus instructed his disciples to baptize. So disciples from John the Baptist came over. John was actually one of them. Hope I'm not confusing with all these Johns. And Jesus's ministry included baptism as well. Baptisms of repentance. I've tried to live my own way and it's not working. Someone who would be baptized for repentance would say, I've hurt others. I've, I've hurt myself. I've hurt God. I think I need healing and I need a better direction and end goal. Perhaps God's ways are where I might find wholeness in life after all. Now, it's still, you kind of feel, it's still kind of in a very self-centered way, this baptism of repentance, but it's a first step. Can God help me here? Now, this is what's fascinating. This person is very clearly interested, not indifferent, so they want to find out more. And, and, and they can also be, and usually are, doubtful to the certainty of maybe even God's full existence, of everything God did through Christ. Okay, so we're kind of in between baptisms here. It's really when they lean into and admit, and they, 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 they say, oh my goodness, it is true. It is true. God does love me. God did send his son to die on the cross for me, someone who stands condemned so that he might, he might raise me up too in a similar way of resurrection in order that I might find life and life to the full. And, and I'm going to w- walk by the Spirit moving forward. It's at that point that they receive the Holy Spirit. The, the baptism of repentance is more like dying to a previous life. And baptism of the Spirit is kind of stepping up out of the grave's, grave, being raised again to walk in newness of life. And so what, how we do baptism in, in nowadays is after both of those things have happened, okay? I'm just trying to flesh all this out for you so you're not, uh, so you don't become confused. It's after someone has uh, experienced this water baptism of repentance, and then we see the Spirit is fully evident in this person's life. They're fully believing in the name of Jesus to be saved. They're confessing with their mouth that he is Lord and believing it in their heart. We say, okay, that's great. 
We open up the table of communion to you and, and, and let's get you really baptized, as, not as something that will wash away your sins like this cleansing, like this repentance baptism in John's time was, uh, but as a public declaration that you have died with Christ and have been raised with Christ and you're going to walk in newness of life following Jesus the rest of your days of your life. It's a public declaration. So it's different than John's baptism here. Um, so, What I'm saying is um, there can be a gap between these two baptisms momentarily, like temporally. There often is. Um, and if you, the more ministry that you do, the more that you help people come to understand who God is, and, and maybe even for the first time they start processing it and they start to be open to, to God, you can see that, okay, something actually here is happening I wouldn't use like the words with them. Oh, you've undergone a baptism of repentance, it seems. You're entertaining the ideas of God and whether his ways are, 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 are good or not. And you're actually starting to adopt some of them, even though you don't fully believe that all of it is true, that, every, that the gospel proper, that God showed up in the person of, of Jesus to take care of you. You don't necessarily believe that's true yet, but you're actually taking steps of repentance, it seems. Oftentimes there's a little bit of a gap between these two baptisms. Anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light or takes a step towards the light. Now, in that gap, you might be tempted to think what you need or what your friend needs are some proofs of the existence of God. Like that will really do it. Like if, like if they're just sure of the existence of God, then certainly they're going to believe and, and jump, all, jump, jump all the way in. Certainly, they're going to believe if that were the case. But I got news for you. There's no reasonable, logical, philosophical argument for God that's airtight. That's 100% there. There just isn't. Now, there's strong ones, but not certain ones. And the same is true for the, the, the opposite. There's no airtight, philosophical, reasonable, or logical argument against the existence of God or for atheism. But I have good news. You don't need an argument of the existence of God to get you through this gap period, to help you progress in it. What you actually need is an argument to hope in God, or an argument that says, I can't prove beyond the shadow of a doubt. I can't prove 100%. I don't have an airtight argument that, that it's reasonable, that I don't have a reasonable argument for the existence of God. But I can can encourage you that it's reasonable to trust in God. You can be shown that it's reasonable to live your life like God is real because the eternal payoff for that is infinite while the loss of those evil deeds or pleasures that John is talking about here or your personal independence or uh, autonomy in, in certain areas of your life, that's such a small thing to forfeit by comparison because to live as if God the God of these scriptures isn't real, while you may enjoy those finite pleasures now that you want to hold on to, you would miss out on an eternal reward if he does turn out to be real. So would you rather lose that reward or the temporary pleasures of life? And if you're wrong one way or the other, which would you rather lose? Now, I've just described to you in somewhat rudimentary form Pascal's wager. 
Blaise Pascal had a, a radical conversion to Christianity. He was a mathematician, philosopher. Um, he had a radical conversion to Christianity, intense feelings of the Holy Spirit. It was a, he was an incredible Christian thinker and philosopher as well of, of, of the 1600s. Um, he was French, and he would be far more widely known if he hadn't died at the young age of 39. Um, but he wrote on the human conditions, the thing... The, the human condition, the things that get in the way of following God, things like distraction. We don't experience distraction, do we? That doesn't get in the way of following God. Yeah, it always has. It always has. And, and, and this wager is what he's most known for, and it's not an argument for belief. It, it, it's, it's an argument. It, it is an argument for belief. It's not an argument in the existence of God. It is an argument for just believing in God. That belief itself is reasonable. And so I actually don't have time to unpack all of it today, this morning. Oh, we're actually coming closer to the end of our time here. But if, if you would say, I feel like I might be in this gap where I'm not all in on Christianity. Like, I wouldn't say that I believe that all of this is true, but I'm starting to investigate whether it could be. And I'm wondering how I might order my life in such a way that would live that way to see if it would help. Um, I've printed off a couple copies of this wager, and it, it, he did write it in the 1600s, and so it's actually come along with a, a, a modern-day writer to kind of explain some of the points that he's saying. And I placed him next to the place where you can drop, uh, um, like, checks. Uh, that we have, like, a checkbox back there if you want to give that way. It's right there. So if you would say, I'm kind of in the gap, this is for you. There's, there's a couple handfuls of those back there. If you are not, if you say, I fully believe in Jesus already, um, but that intrigues me, I would encourage you to buy the book that this is in. Um, because I'm pretty sure this is in minor ways breaking copyright law, and I'm fine breaking copyright law for people in the gap, but not for just regular old Christians like you and me. Okay? So, uh, <laughs> um, but, and so, yeah, this is a great uh, work. I've, I've read several chapters of it, and um, yeah, so, and, and I'm sure that the author would feel the same way, which is why I feel that way. Uh, so Peter Kreft, Kreft he's, uh, he's so good at explaining what Pascal is talking about. But I'll just share two insights with you um, from his wager uh, that are really, really helpful to begin wrap your head around uh, if, if you are in the gap, how to conceive of yourself and, and what's next for you, okay? And it goes like this. Pa, um, Pascal, he really acknowledges that we love sin, <laughs> that, that it, sin feels good, that, that, that we have passions, that we want to fulfill them, and he knows that your primary concern, one of which, probably, but probably the top, is really your primary concern, I'll put it like this, he knows that your primary concern to come into complete faith in Christianity is not intellectual. It's carnal. It's the fear that you might lose that sin which makes you feel so good. That that you know that you don't want to fully believe because you love sin, like, like John is talking about here. He encourages you to be honest about that. And for many of you, what you're finding is that God has let you go so far deep into your carnal desires and your sin, partially because the deeper you go, you actually keep finding that there's still this hole in my heart and in my life. Pascal says, yeah, that was me. It's not fulfilling. Jim Carrey says it like this, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and get everything they ever dreamed of so they will discover that that's not the answer of life. Pascal has a really great phrase here. 
It says, as you contemplate all that you'll miss out in life if you were to follow God, what's to say those pleasures don't get replaced with new pleasures? What's to say that? Because God isn't anti-pleasure. He simply desires the right pleasures in the right places and the right amounts at the right time so that we can flourish as people. He wants to protect us. And then second, Pascal is trying to help people who are considering Jesus robustly consider Jesus. Robustly. Sometimes being a, a curious investigator, asking questions, remains just an intellectual consideration. Pascal wants to make that consideration more robust. He's saying, don't just try out Christianity intellectually. Try it on your whole life. Try it on your whole life. He wasn't around when they were dressing rooms, but I, I think he would love this analogy. Let me give it to you. You can try on Christianity like clothes at a store. You can take them and you can take them into the dressing room and put that sweater on or the jeans on or the shoes on or the jacket. Like, like you can try it on and see how it looks. And see how it fits. And see how it feels. Don't worry. No one's forcing you here. When you're in the dressing room, you can even kind of do that alone for a while before anybody's looking in. And then you can even buy those clothes and take them home with you with the thought in the back of your mind that says, I can always return these if I want. And you can. You can always return them if you want the clothes of Christianity. But Pascal's saying, it's okay to start living as if God was true. It's okay to start wrestling these passions that, that these scriptures kind of identify as like, these are problem points for humanity. It's okay to start taking steps of repentance in that way, even before you fully believe and say, I'm all in. That's what Pascal wants to, that, that's what Pascal views his wager as empowering someone to do. It's okay to believe in God, to try it out, and see what happens, not just intellectually with your life, with your life. Because what you might find is that after wearing these clothes out in public for a little while, they just fit too perfect. They, they, they look great, they feel good, and you want to keep on wearing them even though you get made fun of for wearing them. And at that point, you might realize, oh gosh, I've become a Christian. We've seen it happen before. Oh gosh, I, I guess I'm a Christian now. Or at that point, you might, realize, you might get down on your knees and you might praise God and say, God, I confess that you are Lord, that you sent Jesus to die for me so that I could live abundantly with this new set of clothes in the world so that other people might, might know about you. Then this table opens up for you. And then you talk to, to us here at the church and we'll baptize you at Green Lake. That's when full spirit enters your life are we in a precarious spot before God? Sure. We love the things that are contrary to God wants for us. But are we forgiven in Christ? Absolutely. Because God had a dilemma to solve himself. While we were still sinning and rebellious before God, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, verse eight while we were still sinning, Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the perfect people, not for the good people, the ungodly. Christ died for us, the ungodly. All we have to do is lift up our eyes and honestly acknowledge our actions got here in the first place and trust that God has solved this dilemma. Doing that at first, it's hard. It's hard. But we can take steps towards 
the light. We can take steps towards the light and, and start to experience the joy of what following God looks like. All these things. Love neighbor, love enemy. Try putting that on. What does that feel like? What does that do? But it's the reason you were made. The life that we find is because God loved enemies. It's the most fundamental part of Christian life. That's why if you can't forgive one another, Jesus says, you're missing the whole point. God forgave you. You were his enemy at one point. But his love, thankfully, was greater than his anger towards you. And he has lavished grace upon you, grace upon grace upon grace. And if that sounds great to you, wonderful. Begin to turn and start following God. Even if you think that he might not be real yet, start trying it out because you might just find the most thrilling and rewarding life that you've ever had. Will you pray with me?